bless bless I say, why, Sparks, why are you led, why are you, why are you just quiet up there while he's playing that? Because I don't think the music is a commercial in a worship service. I think it's part of the worship experience, which is why you often see me ask them to do certain things or say certain things because it's part of the experience. One thing I do know for certain is today's worship experience will be unlike any you've ever been in before. Today will be a unique worship experience and it won't be duplicated or repeated ever in your life. And so that's a beautiful thing for us. You can say, I was at the one and only. Doesn't everybody want to be a part of something unique, the only experience? Well, that's what every worship experience becomes a one and only. So we thank God for your presence today. We thank God for you being here just this day. So glad to see you. We told you last Sunday and perhaps even the Sunday before that we were going to start a new worship, a new Bible study series or a new sermon series that we entitled The Good Life. The good life, the good life. We're going to do our best to start studying and teaching from, for some, a very familiar passage of scripture. Um, comes from Matthew chapter five. If you got your Bible, you might want to go ahead and go there and start finding it. As I said before in Bible study this week, and we started that new Bible study series. It's okay to use the table of contents if you don't know what Matthew is. Go ahead and find it, Matthew chapter 5. This passage of scripture is perhaps one of Jesus' most dynamic sermons. Many have written about this book in Matthew, beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In chapter one of Matthew, if you look at it, there's a detail there of Jesus' birth. We've studied it. In fact, we just came out of that season. Babe that was born to a virgin. So named Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. In chapter two, we start finding that. And so, and so in chapter one, we study his nativity. In chapter 2, we start looking at his, his dignity, because in that chapter, we discover that there are well, men from afar who came seeking him. They brought to him very valuable things. The Bible refers to frankincense, gold, and myrrh. He placed it at his feet, thus evidencing that not only those around him knew of his value, but those from far distances also knew that he was worthy to be worshipped, even at that point. In chapter 3, we look at his baptism by his cousin, John the Baptist, who was on the scene and who was uh, referred to as the last prophet of the Old Testament, even though he was in 
the New Testament. John, though a contemporary of Jesus, he became a bridge to Jesus because he was the foreteller of Jesus' presence here on earth. Not only do we see that at his baptism, but we also see when he was baptized by John, we also see the presence of the, the uh, theophany. God shows up in earth, on earth. Not only is God present at his son's baptism, but the Holy Spirit is also present. So right there, in that water, you talk about a one-day experience. You knew what you were looking at. Many didn't, most didn't, certainly couldn't appreciate. Not only did you have Jesus the Son being baptized, God the Father putting his stamp of approval on it, and the Holy Spirit being there to exalt it in the presence of a dove. Not only that, but God spoke from heaven validating that this was his son in whom he was well pleased. That was a day right there on the Sea of Galilee. That was a day there, Cass. Not only that, Jesus started moving about in the manner that would start bringing more attention to him. The Bible says that he then moved on into chapter 4 and we find that just as he started getting going, the devil was in his face. We see in chapter 4 that he's being tempted by the devil, who is not Jesus' equal by any stretch of the imagination. But he uses things of an earthly nature to try to uh, influence Jesus to give him, the enemy, the glory that's only due to God. And so the first four chapters of Matthew builds Jesus up in a way that I need you to understand this morning before we get into the study of this Bible, uh, this Bible pass, these Bible passages. Jesus came here in the person of a babe, but he came here on mission. He came here to save us. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that this man is God's son. That's his mission. Don't ever look at him as just another man. Don't ever devalue his purpose for coming to be among us because if you do, you start losing sight and appreciation of the lessons we are taught. You must understand who Jesus is and why he was sent. You also need to understand the backdrop of him coming. If I can, Mason, people forget that by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, heaven had been silent to earth for 400 years. People have been getting up saying, well, well, is our God who rescued us from the hand of all those enemies. Where is he? We need to hear from him. Heaven was silent. That didn't mean people didn't get up in the morning praying. That didn't mean people didn't get up in the morning hoping. They did every single day, but for 400 years, heaven was silent. I don't think y'all understand how hard that had to be on those folks. That means that people were born and they died never having heard from heaven, but they hoped the whole time. We, we, we can't put that into a today's cultural context because we always want everything now. If it's got to wait longer than an hour, we got a problem. And I'm talking 400 years that are referred to as the silent years in scripture. Not since that verse in Malachi 4 and 6 that we hear from heaven. And then there was Jesus. The Bible says that God's clock struck the fullness of time. And when it struck the fullness of time, he sent the rescuer to us to be rescued. The Old Testament ends without a warning, um, with a warning of judgment to come on the people. 
that God had grown weary of always having to rescue those he loved, always having to get us out of the trouble that we so easily got ourselves in, chasing after lesser gods. But even though the Old Testament closes with a warning of judgment, God in his love opens the new writ with grace. Closes with judgment, opens Matthew with grace. And that grace is named Jesus. A promise to his people that I am the God I have said I am and that I would rescue my people from their sins. For those of you who believe in my son, Jesus Christ, the rescue plan is here. Max Lucado wrote a book that I've used as the title of this particular sermon. It's a sermon part one today. The name of his book is The Applause of Heaven. Today is The Applause of Heaven. Let me read a passage from you. For, from it for you. The Beatitudes end with this compelling promise. Great is your reward in heaven. It's verse, five, verse 12 of chapter 5. The book of Revelation could be called the book of homecoming. In Revelation 21 verse 2, John describes heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 4 says, there will be no more death. The most hopeful words are in verse 5, which says, I, make, I am making everything new. The master builder will pull out the original plan that he had for earth and restore the vigor, the energy, and the hope and the soul that he once created. Each step you take as you enter the gates of heaven bring you closer to your destination. Before you know it, you'll be entering the city. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud because you are there. Too often we forget about what that day might be when we show up on heaven's doorstep. Some of us will have gone through an arduous journey to get there, but I guarantee you every step you take, every move you make in that direction, Heaven is watching, and heaven will applaud all the efforts you've made toward being part of God's kingdom. The applause of God is what, or heaven is what we all seek. But it takes a while for us to get there. It takes a way for us to get there, and, and we have to live in this space. And we don't live in this space with tunnel vision. We got to deal with the stuff that goes on around us. How many of y'all besides me know it's hard living down here? How many of y'all besides me know not only is it hard living down here, some folks seem to deliberately make it harder for you. Yeah, they seem to make their business making your life miserable. At least that's how it seems sometimes. Now, it may not be that way at all, but it seems that way to me sometimes that some folk deliberately try to get in the way. Uh, uh, and my uncle say, just when I was starting to do right, y'all come messing with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whether that's true or not, I'm not certain. <laughs> yeah. But I find it to be true more often sometimes than not. It's important for you to understand the backdrop of Jesus's entrance into his public ministry. It's not something you can go into with tunnel vision, myopically, looking focused at one point. You got to see the whole scope of the environment. Remember this now, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. It was a city under siege. There was no Jew in town 
who was not under the thumb of the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities cared nothing about the Jews or their religion or their savior. They didn't want to deal with that. And yet it's in this environment that Jesus comes to rescue his people. But not only were there Romans around all uh, the whole city, there were different sects in the community. Just like we have political divisions in our community right now, you got to know that there were political divisions at that time in Jesus's world. And there were five of them that I need to tell you about because they make a difference in how Jesus was presenting to his folk. I'd like to be able to stand up here and tell you that folk heard Jesus's message and everybody jumped on board and followed him. And it was, oh, what a wonderful day. That's simply not the case because Jesus came tearing down world systems. Jesus came destroying what is for what could be. Jesus came trying to tell folk there's a way unto man that seems right, but the end thereof is destruction. And he also not only had to come and tell them that there was a narrow way with one gate, he had to come and be the narrow way with one gate. And so who were the folk who were in town? Glad you asked. I gave you some information today that you might want to jot down. First of all, there were, you hear them all the time in scripture, the Pharisees. Oh yeah, these Pharisees were these powerful Jews. They were numerous. They ran the power structure at that time. They had what's called a strict adherence to the law of Moses. We studied the beginning of the law of Moses. We're going to really get into it this week in our Bible study, 45 Minutes of Purpose on Wednesday night. That was a commercial. The law of Moses comprised of the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is the name of it. All right? The law. These folk studied it and lived by it to the letter so much so that it was a stranglehold on their lives and they would judge anybody who did not live by the law of Moses uh, as being in error. Yeah, you couldn't uphold all the tenets. But the problem is, Jesus said, you know the law, but you don't know the spirit behind the law. And so while you tithe, you still leave poor folk watching you. So you're not paying attention to what is really meant behind the law. But the Pharisees made up the majority of the folk in the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling organization for the Jews. And then there were the Sadducees or the modernists. The Pharisees were the traditionalists. The Sadducees were the modernist folk. They were the liberal folk of the day. All right. And though they didn't have as many numbers as the Pharisees, they still had as much influence because you can have small numbers if you got deep pockets. These folk were wealthy. Because they were wealthy, they could move the needle on a lot of issues because they could buy their way into it. And that's what they did. They embraced a Hellenistic lifestyle and were liberal in their doctrine. They didn't follow every jot and tittle like the, the Pharisees did. And you find that to be the case always because sometimes living a strict lifestyle is hard and it restricts you from doing some of the stuff you want to do. And you find today that folk who got a little money will always buy themselves a shortcut so they don't have to do everything <laughs> that everybody else has to do. But one thing they did that was very, very problematic one belief system they had was they denied any life after death and a literal resurrection. They simply did not believe it. And because of that, that was problematic for Jesus's mission. And they sought to tear down his teaching at every turn because they said scripture foretold that, but there's no way that could ever be the case. And then there were the separatists or the Essians. All right. They, they, they held to a strict lifestyle of separation from the rest of society and usually dwelt outside or away from most of the population based. And so they were typically removed from the influence of others. And yet they always came in to make their voices known in the discussion surrounding 
Jesus. Now you need to understand why these people are important because ultimately it was these group of people, this group of people that led to Jesus being murdered. They were the ones creating the problems for Jesus and they were the ones who had the attention of the people, including some of Jesus' own disciples who were part of this group. Hello, Judas. Zealots or the activists, you know, Jewish Lives Matter, them folk. These political reformers who wanted to overthrow the Romans. And so they saw anybody coming in who had any presence or power as potentially being the next king or leader politically. And that's how they saw Jesus coming in. Hello, Judas, who thought Jesus was coming in to bring another revolution. And part of that revolution was going to include him. And he wanted his place at the table. And then lastly, there were the Herodians. They were the smallest of the Jewish groups, but they wanted no part of dissent. They were going to get along with the Romans at any call. They didn't have any problem doing with the Romans. They didn't like ripples in the community. And so it was hard dealing with them because they were always going to run back and tell Master what was going on. These were the groups of people that were in the space. And so now imagine who Jesus is preaching to when he comes in in this chapter 5 and he has a group of people surrounding him ready to listen to what he has to say. Let me give you biblical reference on this. Verse 5, I mean chapter 5 verse 1 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, and I'm reading from the New, King, New, New Century Version of the Bible. I intentionally picked this version because I think it reads with more clarity on this subject. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a hill and sat down, most important. His followers came to him and he began to teach them by saying, they are blessed who realize their spiritual poverty, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. They are blessed who grieve, for God will comfort them. They are blessed who are humble, for the whole earth will be theirs. They are blessed who hunger, hunger and thirst after justice, for they will be satisfied. They are blessed who show mercy to others, for God will show mercy to them. They are blessed who, whose thoughts are pure, for they will see God. They are blessed who work for peace, for they will be called God's children. They are blessed who are persecuted for doing good, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. People will insult you and hurt you. They will lie and say all kinds of evil things about you because you follow me. But when they do, you will be blessed. Rejoice and be glad because you have a great reward waiting for you in heaven. People did the same evil things to the prophets who lived before you. The Beatitudes is what this is referring to. The Beatitudes is what this is referring to. So when you hear those uh, terminology, that terminology, blessed are those. This is what Jesus is talking about. Verse, four, verse 1 says, and seeing the multitude. Anybody here glad that Jesus can look at you and know when you're in trouble? You don't have to tell him. He can look at you and know you got a problem. Some people don't have the presence of, of mind to understand when folk are struggling, when something's going on, because we, in our ways, put on a good face. We know how to walk in and walk around folk and be around folk with a mask on. But there are other people who have the uh, uh, discernment when your life is troubling you and to tell you, I know something's going on with you. You need some help or you want to talk about it. Other people don't have that. But Jesus, according to the scripture, certainly had that level of discernment. It says, and seeing the multitude, he knew that they needed something. And so the Bible says he took them up 
on a mountain. Why in the world would Jesus take them up on a mountain? Because he wanted to remove them from all these groups of folk who were in their ear all the time. He wanted to get them away from the distractions that life can bring so that he could talk to them specifically. All right, so he took them up on a mountain. Not only that, when he took them up on the mountain, the Bible says Jesus specifically sat down to teach with them. Now, in that day and time, sitting down and teaching disciples was significant. He could have walked and talked to them, as we see in Scripture, he did sometimes. But when a leader, a rabbi, actually sat down with those who were following him to teach them, it became more authoritative in that setting. He's actually teaching us right now. And that's why Jesus Christ came. That's why he sat down. And he's talking to, this is important now, I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but Jesus gave this message to folk who believe him. This is for the household. This is not for those outside the household. If you got something from it and you're not in the household, well, God bless you. But the reason why Jesus wanted to do this teaching is because he said, I'm here to save you, but I need to show you how to follow me. I need to show you how to live as part of my kingdom. And I came to tell you now, he's teaching. And the reason he's teaching is because it's not intuitive. You have to be taught how to follow Jesus in the kingdom. It's just not something that comes to mind because what seems right in the kingdom, is, I mean, seems right in the world is usually turned upside down in the kingdom. And so he said, I need to get you away. So you can look at me and listen to me and hear me. We had folk following Jesus from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem, I mean Jerusalem and Judea, even some from the Jordan area were following him. All these people. He was a rock star. They wanted to hear what he was saying because he was turning the world on his ear, Katrina. They, they, they didn't understand somebody like him. And it's easy when you get caught up in the crowd to think you're doing right. And that's why it needs to come from the master's mouth on how you ought to live. He is the number one authority on how to live a righteous life. And so if you're getting it from anybody else, then you got a problem. And so here he is. He starts telling them how they ought to live. What are the Beatitudes? Well, Beatitude is a Latin word that means joy. This is crucial in your understanding of what Jesus is saying. It simply means joy or blessedness. Blessedness, all right? So there's a difference between beatitude meaning joy or blessedness and beatitude meaning happy. Because a whole lot of books that you might read might substitute the word blessedness for happy. And I came to tell you right now, this is far bigger than happy, all right? So do not make the error in thinking that Jesus is trying to tell you how to be happy. I know the songwriter tells you not to worry and just be happy, but that's not what we're talking about in this situation. Yeah, the Greek word for blessedness in this passage and throughout the whole scripture that we're referring to is the word makarios. Makarios. Now, in the Greek Isles, there is a place called Cyprus. And in the area called Cyprus, it's an island that those ancient people believe, follow me now on this, that was so perfect that you never ever had to leave it for anything. It was almost considered a paradise area for them. And they started calling it because it was so perfect. They started referring to it as Hey Macaria. In other words, it was the blessed place. The blessed place or the blessed island. And so when we take the term blessedness from the original meaning, we're talking about being in a place 
that is absolutely wrong. Being in a place of satisfaction, being in a place that gives you everything you might need under any circumstances. And so above anything else, this place is so perfect, and here we go now, that it's unaffected by the winds of change in your life. Somebody ought to hear me now. That's why there's a difference between what Jesus means when he says blessedness, being joyful and not happy. Because when you are happy, that means you are subject to what is happening. When you are full of joy at its essence, that means it doesn't matter the things that happen in and around you. You are already in a place of satisfaction. It's important to folk now. Let me tell you why it's important. Because some of us get so stuck on happy. Some of us seek to live our whole life just being happy. And I came to be the one today that the word happy does not mean the same thing as being blessed. If you live enough to know you got to realize that you can be blessed and not happy. And so when you get stuck on happy being the essence of your life, you're going to mess up. Because there are a whole lot of folks who have everything they could ever desire materially in the world. And what they do not have, they can get it when they want it. And they are still not happy. They are still searching every day for something to put happy in their life. They are miserable. And the reason they're miserable is because stuff doesn't bring you joy. Doesn't bring you joy. No. No, we are fooled in this environment, in this, in this time, to think that the more I get, the happier I'll be. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Can I tell you why you believe that? Because the enemy wants you to believe that. He wants you chasing stuff. He wants you trying to go get everything that's in the world because the more you chase that, the more distracted you are from the Lord. The higher you keep trying to climb on the totem pole, the further you're getting away from what God wants you to be. What we really want is to get to a place, and here we go, Jesus, in this teaching. And that's what the essence of this teaching. What you really want to do is get to a place where you understand that the true value in life is having God's approval on your life. God's applause on your life is the most valuable thing you could ever have. Yeah. And so what Jesus is saying, because I want you to understand the essential value of God's approval or heaven's applause in your life, I've got to give you instruction on how to live that kind of life. And that's why we have this teaching. Because Jesus wants to show us how to live like he lived. That's why this message, these messages are for believers. Because if you're not a believer in Jesus, this stuff doesn't make any sense to you. You'll start out by saying, you're crazy. You, you, you're out of your mind. Yeah. And so God's approval on your life is the essence of what you're looking for. It's the approval of God that means you're not being concerned about the winds of change in your life. You're not blown over when things don't go so well in your life. And so many of you as believers already know that you're blessed simply by being a believer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe I need to do a check in here. How many of you know, those of you who are in Christ know that that is a blessing in and of itself. The fact that you know enough to be saved that you know somebody came and lived and died for you and was resurrected for you, if you know that, you are already separated from a whole lot of folks. All right? And those of you who did not know that, that's the standard 
from which we come, you may not know that the sole reason Jesus came to earth was for you, was for your sins. But that's what we believe. That's the core of Christendom, that we believe in Jesus and his sacrificial life, death, and his wonderful resurrection. And so that's why Jesus uses the term blessed nine times in this passage. Anytime you use the term nine times in a passage, it's got to be important. Yeah. So there's so much emphasis being placed on this word. What is Jesus really trying to say to us? The first thing he says is, it's blessed to be simple. That's what he said. That's what he said in verse 3. He said, it's blessed. Blessed are the simple. Blessed. Okay, let me put it in the King James Version because this is what you used to hear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I'm just going to ask by a show of hands, who would stand in line to be poor in spirit? Anybody? Anybody? If you put poor in there as a modifier, nobody wants to be in anything with poor. All right? And that's because when you read this, you don't understand what Jesus is saying. I came to tell you, when you leave here, you're going to want to be poor. All right? You're going to want to be poor. On the surface, this statement seems to be a contradiction to what we're talked about, taught in life every day. People who are poor find themselves on the low end of the receiving line in this world. All right? People who are poor are dealing with hunger, uh, improper clothing, improper housing. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. And so when you read this passage of scripture, why in the world would Jesus come to me and tell me that I'm blessed for being poor in something? Doesn't make sense to me, and I, I don't know that I want to follow him. Yes, you do. Because those who are poor physically struggle. Yeah, when you're poor in the physical realm, you struggle. When you're poor in material wealth, maybe not so much, but I, I got news for you. I know some people who don't have a whole lot of material things, and they are happier than people who got mansions high on the hill. Yeah, yeah, folk who don't get up and go to work every day, or uh, don't have to work, don't worry about work. They live from day to day. Yeah, they get they eat when they eat and they, they sleep when they sleep and every now and then they drink a little bit or whatever, but they're happy. You don't ever see them stressed out. They ain't worried about no 401k. They ain't worried about no retirement. They ain't worried about how the bills gonna get paid. They just say it'll get paid. When it get paid, if it get paid, I don't care. Now from a from a from our today's standpoint. Some of us might say that's irresponsible, but just not be honest with me. Just, just be honest. Don't you envy that attitude just a little bit that they don't have to be strung out over that issue. They don't have to be worried about tomorrow. They just live from day to day. I don't borrow from the sunshine before the skies may turn to gray. I know every now and then when I'm getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, getting ready for another day in the meal, I know that that attitude can creep into you sometimes, but the word poor doesn't mean what you think it does in this instance, all right? Poor doesn't mean reduced to begging or destitute. No, no. People Jesus is talking about are poor in spirit. Those who have come to a realization, watch this now, that they need something in their life that this world cannot give them. Those people are poor. Jesus said they've realized that Jesus alone is the one who can supply them with what they truly need, that it does not matter how many things they have, more things won't do it, but just a little talk. How many of y'all know that just a little talk with Jesus can make it right? How many of you know that tell him all about your troubles? He'll hear your faintest cry and he'll answer. 
Yeah, that's a rich person right now who has someone to go to. Not only is that better help, that's best help right there. Best help for every situation you find yourself in. We have material possessions that we have worked hard for. Anybody beside me ever worked hard to buy something? And the day you get it, you can't stand it. <laughs> Yeah, oh, 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 I know it's right. Look, look, some of us have worked hard, extra job, didn't eat no lunch, you know, eat potted meat every day for lunch or whatever. Also, we can go buy a house. Ah, uh, and we sit down at the closing table and they pass all them papers to you. And you start writing checks to them and and then they smile at you and they give you the keys. And they say, congratulations. Who feels like they just won the prize at that point? There's a feeling of, oh, my Lord. What just happened here? I just took on an enormous amount of debt that I got to pay every month for the next, watch this, 20, 30 years. And yet you got to stand in front of the house with the keys and smile. Oh, I know I'm right. Stuff don't make you happy. Everybody pushes toward that. Now, I'm not saying you're not grateful for the opportunity to have that, but what I'm trying to tell you is the intrinsic feeling of success that comes with an you know, an, an action like that can be deceiving. Especially when you walk in and the first day you got it, something in the house broke. And your first, <laughs> for those of you who've been in my, first thing you do is pick up the phone to call the landlord till you realize that you are the landlord. You got to make that work and ain't nobody else to call. Yeah, the Bible tells you Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a man who was rich by the standards of the world, and yet he got to a place where his riches didn't help him. His stature in the Sanhedrin didn't help us. Bible says Nick went out. He was so embarrassed by his stature in the community that he couldn't even see Jesus during the day because he didn't want any of his friends to see him looking for this man who seemed to possess the answers to so many. So he snuck around looking for him under cover of shadows. And he found Jesus and asked Jesus, man, what tell me what, what must I do to get what you're giving to everybody else? Because happiness doesn't get you there. So blessed are the simple, not only blessed are the simple, those who understand that having everything doesn't mean you got everything. If you don't have the main thing. And the main thing is a relationship with one who can feel the cracks and crevices in your spirit and convince you that one day by following him, you too can have eternal life. That's what Jesus comes to tell us, just by faith in him. That's a simple message, but it's a spiritual message. Not only are blessed are the simple, but also blessed are the sorrowful. What in the world? You mean I'm mourning, but I'm blessed? Because I'm mourning, there, there seems to be no time in my life when I've been in a mournful state that I considered myself blessed until I understood what it means under those circumstances. I stood at my mama's casket. I stood at my daddy's casket. There's nobody who could tell me under those circumstances that I was blessed. At that point, the pain that comes from those kinds of activities doesn't lend one to say, I'm, I'm blessed standing right here. But Jesus says that if I'm sorrowful and broken, that I'm going to be given joy and laughter for that. And so godless sorrow, however, is what he's talking about. And the reason I know he's telling the truth is because when I lost both of my parents, I was so spiritually immature. 
that I could only look at the circumstances from the, from the feeling of what I lost. I could only look at it from the feeling of how I was behaving physically at that time. I thank God that I've been able to grow spiritually. And this is what Jesus is talking about. So blessed are those who arrive at the point of misadventure in their life, who arrive at the point of loss, who arrive at the point of mourning in their lives, and they realize that that is not the end. They realize that there is a blessedness that extends beyond where you are right now. But more important than that, Deborah, the only reason I could get to that point is to realize where I was in my own life, that I was sinful and broken, and I needed to thank God that he had lifted me up to a point of awareness. There are too many people walking around right now who are so full of their own righteousness that they are not even sorrowful for their own sin. They are justifying their own sin. They're justifying their own behavior, and that is what is going to lead them into trouble trouble. And so Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn the fact that you understand your sinful nature and have turned it over to the Lord. Blessed are those who've been brought to a place of sorrow for their own sins. Anybody in here got some friends that act like they can do what they want to do anytime they want to? They don't have to answer to anybody for anything. Their life is just jacked up and they love it that way. They come to you and they call you and say, hey, you hanging out with me tonight? Come on now, preacher boy, come on. We all going to hell anyway. Just lost in it. Lost in it. And you say to yourself, Lord, have mercy. I know I've been bad, but thanks be to God, he's given me another chance. You ought to be happy right there. I mean, joyful right there. Because the Lord has blessed you to mourn your own situation from a spiritual standpoint. And from that point, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are sorrowful and who mourn the fact that they live in a sin-filled way. There are days still when I stumble and fall, when I mess up, when I say things and do things that I should not do. But it's at those times that my godly sorrow for my own situation is trumpeted in my life. And I say, at least I know. Yeah, I tell folk all the time, and one of the things I put down on my casting burdens thing last week, cast was, must use better language. Too often I, you know, punctuate things in life with words that I probably should not say. Yes, what did you say? Well, sentence enhances yeah, no, it's just cussing. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm sorrowful about it now because at least now I can count it. The words. There used to be a time when I would have needed a stopwatch to count the words that I say in a day. And now a word will wreck me when I say it because I know I'm better than that I know I got to be better. That's what I'm talking about. Blessed are those who are sorrowful over their condition. When you do things you know you shouldn't do, does it bother you? Do you try to do better? Do you work to do better? That's what Jesus is talking about. If you're going to walk this walk with him, you've got to learn how to be sorrowful for the things that wreck the kingdom. Not only are you blessed if you're simple, sorrowful, but you also got to be blessed if you're submissive. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You can't go around folk today in 2023 talking about being meek. No. Yeah. And the reason you can't is because people automatically assume that the word meek means that you're weak. It means that you'll let folk deal with you any kind of way and let folk walk all over you. And, and they say you can't do that. You got to read folk when they get in your space. And you got to tell them what you're about because if you give them one chance, they'll take another. You give them an inch. Well, that's another message right there. Yeah. These people that he's talking about had laid claim to their heritage all the way. Hear me now. You're not going to like me when I say that. That's okay. That's, they didn't like Jesus when he said it either. 
Look at the people that Jesus was talking to, these Jews. He was talking to Ingrid. They were proud people. They had been taught their lineage all the way back to Abraham. They thought they were specifically the it people. Oh, yeah, you couldn't tell them that God hadn't given them an exact promise that everything was going to be all right. They laid claim to their heritage and thought that if you weren't part of their heritage, that you were not part of the chosen people. They, they, they were proud and this pride led them to thinking that they could do anything that they wanted to do. And Jesus had to come and break it to them hard. He said to them that you need to be poor in spirit enough to understand that you don't have it made just because you were born into a certain group of folks. Some folk in here are arrogant because they were born into a church family. Oh, 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 you never lived a life outside of knowing that there was a Jesus. But there are some folk who were not born around church, into church going family. There are some people who have had to seek it out themselves. The only thing you had to do was get up on Sunday and get in the car. And you were brought to church every time. You were taught the ways of the church. You were around people who were believers, examples all the time. And because of that, you have grown desensitized to people who never understood or had that example. Never knew what they had to have done. Never knew that everybody ain't got no praying mama or praying grandmama. Yeah, nobody who sat you down when you were a child and taught you to now I lay knees or, or uh, bless the Lord for this food. Nobody ever taught you that. You had to learn all that stuff. Some people had to learn it all themselves. And so they don't understand that meekness doesn't mean weakness. No, 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 no. Meekness, that, that's not what it means. Meekness simply means that you understand and recognize your sinfulness of spirit. The meekness of spirit allows you to recognize God's holiness in your life. Oh, yeah. You're not good because you know all your speeches. You're not good because you've been in the choir for 20 years. No, no, you're good because God's Holy Spirit is a part of you and has been blessing you even when you couldn't appreciate it. Meekness and humility go hand in hand, and that's the word we struggle. We don't want to be humble. No, no, no. There's a pride and arrogance that goes being part of the church. There's a pride and arrogance that gets us in trouble. We got into the place where we feel like we've arrived. Yeah, good at seeing the sin in other folks. Good at seeing the need that they have for more Jesus in their life. But hard at seeing the sin in our own lives and even looking at them like that. If they need more Jesus, how much more of you can you give them? How much can you teach them? If that's what they need, would we be willing to continue to follow the Lord if we had to do it the way some of these folk in Scripture have done? They had to get up one day, leave everything they knew, and travel to a place they'd never been to before, depend on folk who they didn't know to keep them. How many of us would make it under those circumstances? Some of us have been given life on a silver platter. And we think heaven comes to us the same way. We don't want to work for anything. There is no meekness. There is nothing but arrogance in our walk. We believe that we got it made. And that the Lord is going to make sure we continue to get everything we deserve. Because we've been practicing them. That's why people are wrecked when things happen in their lives and don't go according to them. Some folk have been walking in their own walk. And then when you take the support system that they have, they go to pieces. Because they've never really had a relationship with the Lord. They had a relationship with their mama. Who had a relationship with the Lord? But when mama's not on the scene anymore, 
they're struggling because they've never really had to depend on the Lord. I came to tell you right now, mama, daddy, you're killing your children's understanding of a relationship with the Lord because you are their God. Anything they need, you give them. You don't let them want anything. In fact, you brag about the fact. As long as I'm alive, they're going to get everything they need. Well, then they don't need to look for anybody higher. As long as they have you, every need is met. Whenever they get in trouble, they don't have to call on the name of the Lord. They just got to call mother. And she'll make everything. All right. Oh, but the day that Madea ain't around no more. You need to understand that the day is going to come when you got to depend on somebody higher than somebody you see. You got to depend on the unseen to get you to a place that you hope to go to. Yeah. We've been trying to tell you in song and scripture that you can't depend on mama. Mama had to depend on somebody else. And mama wasn't doing nothing wrong when she tried to keep you out of trouble. Mama wasn't doing nothing wrong when she tried to give you the things that you needed. But mama also tried to make sure you understood that she wasn't the source of your supply. That she had to depend on somebody other than the grocery man. Because sometimes from the grocery man standard, her bill was already at capacity. She couldn't get no more credit. And even in those circumstances, the Lord still blessed her. Mama was meek enough to understand that asking the Lord for help don't mean you weak. It just means you his. You just his. So don't raise your children to see you as the only source of supply. Every now and then, you got to do what God does to us and tell them no. In fact, they need to hear no a whole lot more than they do. Poverty is more than just not having something to eat. It's, having, it's not having something to want for. Oh, they don't have to beg for anything because you make sure before they ask for it, they got it. That's a problem. Now, I hate to be the one to tell you this. I hate to be the one to tell you this on a Sunday morning because if you don't hear me right now, life is going to show them exactly what I'm saying. Prepare your children. Prepare yourself for the eventuality that some, you're going to need something, the songwriter said, bigger than you and I. There is a present application for being meek, being humble, being teachable. All right? And that is that people have to go through some adversity in order to understand who they can depend on. But a life that's lived in light of Jesus will be self-validating. God knows how to show you he loves you. But you got to give them space enough to do it. Why would I call upon someone who I don't need to call upon? Hear me now. They don't need to call God. They just call you. And you always answer. Right now, they know they can depend on you. But guess what? There's a bigger, a bigger day ahead when they're going to need to know which way they're going to go. I'm going to get out of here and we can finish this. I know I need to set you up today longer than I want. But I needed you to understand that what the Bible says turns what we believe about today on its head. The last one is blessed are those who are seekers. 
Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do hunger and thirst after righteousness. The truth is that Jesus is teaching us that you ought to wake up in the morning wanting to hear something about him. You ought to go through your day needing to be in contact with him. You ought to go through life wanting to be closer to him. You got to make sure that not only you, but your children understand that coming to church is not punishment. It's teaching. It's instruction. Those who seek after the Lord, those who follow him will be blessed. You'll be rewarded for your diligence. And the more you are involved in his life, the more he'll be involved in your life. Oh, yeah. There's a story of an Indian chief who was rescued from a very dangerous situation by some missionaries. And after spending some time around them for a long time, he was converted, Cass, to a believer in Jesus Christ. And he told them that even though he had never studied that any in his life, he was glad he had made the conversion to being a believer in Jesus Christ. He said the problem is every day he gets up, there's a war going on inside of him. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's a part of me that wants to strive for him, and then there's a part of me that pulls away from him. And in his words, he said, it's like two dogs battling one another. And the missionary said to him, well, if it's like two dogs battling one another, which one is winning? And he said, the one that's winning is the one I feed. Oh, yeah. If you feed a life of materialism and living in this world, that's what's going to grow in your life. But if you feed a life of growing spiritually, if you feed a life of prayer, if you feed a life of devotion, if you feed a life of growing closer to the Lord, that's what's going to grow in your life. That's something you have to concentrate on. You have to fight for because the world will rob you of the time you try to spend. With the Lord, the enemy is good at creating distractions for you. He doesn't want you to spend time with the Lord because he realizes that the more time you spend with the Lord, the worse you're going to be for his purposes. You got to fight for it. That's why being a seeker in everything you do. Yeah, find the Jesus in everything. Find the righteousness in everything. Find the good in everything and live that way. You ought to, as the psalmist wrote, like a deer that panteth after water brooks, every day you ought to get up thirsty for more knowledge for the Lord. And I came to tell you today, that I'm still struggling in a whole lot of these ways, but I'm so glad I know that Jesus came for me. I'm blessed because I try to live for him every day, and I know that I'm blessed because I'm seeking him every day. I'm blessed because I realize that my spirit is crushed down under the knowledge that I'm just a sinner who's been saved by grace. That's all I am. It doesn't matter how many jobs I do in the church. I'm still just a sinner that's been saved by grace. It doesn't matter how many folk call me pastor. I'm still just a sinner that's been saved by grace. You need to understand that if you love him, that's a joyful thing because you know enough to love him. I'm glad I know that one day. And I didn't learn this for real when I was a child. Spent all my life at First Missionary Baptist Church, East Ball. But it wasn't until I became an adult that the teaching took hold. That I really understood I was in a dangerous place in my walk with the Lord. I had been baptized. Gone in the water. Confessed my undying devotion to the Lord. But it wasn't true. It wasn't true because I didn't know him. I didn't know him. I got baptized because other folk were getting up going to get baptized. Oh, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. 
some folk got baptized because their sister got baptized or because their brother got baptized or cousin or because it was BTU. I mean, I'm sorry, vacation Bible school. Yeah, that's why they got baptized. Didn't bit more because their grandmama said, you going up there tonight. And if you don't go up there, you ain't getting that chicken leg you want this evening. But I'm glad to tell you that I got to know him for myself. And I'm thanking him that he gave me the grace to get to this point. You think the greatest thing in my life is that he let me be the pastor of a church? I came to tell you, no, nah, it's a job. It's a job. Like, that's a job. Like, ushering is a job. Like, it's a job in the church. It's just a different job that other folk got. The greatest thing that he could ever do for me in my life is that he saved me. The greatest thing that he could ever do is that he rescued me from the fiery pits of hell. The greatest thing, the greatest knowledge I have didn't come from any schooling I've gone to. I don't care what certifications or degrees I have. That's not the knowledge that has value. It does have worldly application, but the knowledge that has value is that one day I'm going to live with him in glory. One day when this life is over, I'll have eternity with him. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about today. You never come to that understanding, and I'm telling you right now, he didn't just do it for me. He did it for each one of us. Have you accepted the gift that he's given you? Have you accepted the death that he gave just for you and the fact that his father resurrected him? I'm inviting you right. Make that application. Make that a public declaration that Jesus died for you. I'm inviting you right now to accept this gift. He came as an invitation. I'm extending the invitation to you. Extending the invitation to you. He died. But the great part about that is today he lives for you. And he's waiting on you to be part of his kingdom. While this choir stands to sing of this song, the doors of our church are wide open. You ought to come to him with this kind of enthusiasm. Wanting to serve him. Don't care how old you are. Come to him like a child. Amen. Come on, sing the song, folks. Come on.